Hi, I'm August. I'm Jess. I'm Adam. I'm Mercer. And I'm Afi. Welcome back to the periphery. This week, we're talking climate change and cities. Okay, guys, you know I love cities. Back long ago, long, long ago, when I was just a college student, I was an intern at San Diego City Hall, and I became hooked at cities because there was so much getting done and hardly anyone paid attention. In the most recent election for city council, for instance, turnout was less than 35,000 in almost every district where the population were well over 250,000 people each. Wow. I know, right? But the coolest part, to me at least, was the engagement the city had with its citizens that were engaged. Every week, without fail, a woman who, won't not, who will not be named, mostly because I can't remember her name, <laughs> would call and call and call and take up as much time as she needed or as she could because mostly I think she was lonely and wanted to talk to someone and we were specifically trained on how to get off the phone. My boss would be like, okay, but when you say you're gonna hang up, hang up because if you don't hang up, she calls your bluff and she'll keep going and going and going. There was also another elderly couple uh, that would always, always forget their trash and their civic education had taught them that they could call us up in District 5 and we could call the trash people to send the trash ground yet again. You know, as most people don't know, or at least in San Diego, the trash is city property, so it's the city's responsibility to pick up the trash and get it to the fields. I know that now. Now you know. <laughs> and most critically, this was the most interesting thing to me, was that we tracked and cared about every single issue our constituents cared about. Uh, the moment an issue had 10 callers in our jurisdiction expressing their opinion on an issue, we would open up a spreadsheet, title the issue, track the zip codes, and track yes, no, maybe. And our city council member almost never deviated when there was a very clear pre uh, preference. Democracy worked, but it also meant that our city council member was constrained more than other members when it came to things like building low-income housing. We never got more calls than about that. Our constituents were always, always against. <laughs> Before we jump in to talk more about how awesome cities are, um, I would be remiss not to mention that we saw a great example of city-driven progress when we talked to Stephen Keynes in an episode we released in May about his role as the Deputy Innovation Officer at San Jose. So go give that episode a listen after this one if you haven't heard it yet. But I do want to ask, Afi, why do you think that you like, like, do you think that you like cities more than the average person? Why do you say you love cities? I don't know. I just feel like they're the people's creation. You know, people were just there. We, people made it. People drove it. People, problems, you know, came through the uh, city halls every single day. Uh, and I just felt really, it made me feel really, really connected to what it meant to be a San Diegan as someone who, as you all know, doesn't really have a home. <laughs> and I feel like something about democracy on a local scale yeah. is pure democracy. The way that they were keeping track of those issues, having to respond, right. you know, any, any voter had sway over, right. over the direction of yes. city policy. Totally. Uh, I was like many others, I'm kind of biased toward federal policy. Uh, what happens at the highest levels of government which is often detached. Oh. <laughs> well, which is both more and less powerful, more and less constrained. It's just a different situation. And as I was looking into this topic, I, I ran into some certain definitional problems. Namely, what is a city? What do we mean when we talk about uh, the quote unquote city? National definitions vary a lot. They're really inconsistent. And they rely on administrative boundaries that really just don't reflect how people actually live. Yeah. 
especially commuters and things like that, and especially in the face of mass migration uh, and economic disruption. But today we're talking about climate change responses. We're looking at what, is, what city governments can do. So we're going to rely on U.S. legal and administrative units with all the problems that come with that. But even if we just use population density as a metric, half the world population lives in cities and urbanization is spreading so fast. Large metropolitan areas are going the fastest and small to mid-sized cities are shrinking. Five billion people are predicted to live in cities by 2050. So what became clear to me was that city governments have a direct link to climate change and its effects. Just look at the relationship between cities and the causes of climate change. Cities account for 75% of global carbon emissions. And they have direct authority over two of the most carbon emitting sectors of the economy, buildings and transportation. Buildings cause 40% of global energy-related CO2 emissions, and transportation makes up 27% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, the largest source of emissions in the United States. Or look at the ways that cities have been impacted by climate disasters, like Paradise, California, where a 2018 fire destroyed 95% of the buildings in the town and caused its population to decline by more than 90%. Record flooding this year left cities in Northern California and the Central Valley entirely submerged. C cities in the Southern U.S. are threatened by lethally high temperatures. Also, just to cut in and add, cities are also responsible for handling the emissions of non-city dwellers. So if there are like a lot of agriculture in the state of a large city, guys, cows make up a lot of CO2 emissions. I don't know if you've looked into that. That's a lot of methane. I think it's like August, you're the stats guy. What is it, like 20% or something? It's high. But that, that, that would fall on cities to handle that, right? I think that cities help us understand the human costs of climate change. Some of the largest metropolitan areas are also extremely vulnerable to multiple interlocking climate disasters. Take the New York, New Jersey area or Miami, Fort Lauderdale. Together, that accounts for 26 million people. All of them are at risk of hurricanes, flooding, and rising sea levels at the same time. Or LA, Phoenix, Dallas, Houston, 33 million people in total, all at risk of heat stress, wildfires, drought. Cities know that they have a vital role in protecting people from an increasingly hostile climate, which is why 600 of them have adopted climate action plans right, in the past decade. Right. Before you get carried away, August, this is what you're getting at is exactly why I want to talk about cities this week. You know, I decided we should turn people on to the city as an underrated tool for good. And I listened to the help of our good really brilliant new member, Mercer. Hello, Mercer. Hello, how's it going? To help because cities and states in general have been given a whole lot of power thanks, or I guess depending on your perspective, maybe not so thanks, depending on your point of view, to recent rulings from the Supreme Court, which have empowered cities, or at least left a power vacuum that cities and states themselves can fulfill, especially when it comes to climate. That's right, Afi. So the Supreme Court ruling that you're referring to is West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. So the Environmental Protection Agency is a federal agency that is mandated by law to protect people and the environment from significant health risks, conduct research, and most critically for this episode, we're going to talk about how the Environmental Protection Agency develops and enforces environmental regulations. So in 2015, the Obama administration proposed new regulations for the agency to adopt under the Clean Power Plan, which expanded the agency's ability to reduce national greenhouse gas emissions. And among the provisions were rules specifically targeted at coal mining. 
The EPA adopted the rules, believing that it had the authority to expand its regulatory powers under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. And I'm going to tell you later on why we care about this random section of the Clean Air Act. I'm telling you, it's very important. And so essentially, Congress passed this to give the agency power to make new rules and regulations to reduce emissions. But the coal industry in several states challenged the Clean Power Plan's rule and eventually took the agency to court. And after several rounds of litigation, the Supreme Court heard the case and ultimately limited the EPA's ability to regulate emissions. Exactly. Writing for the 60 majority, Chief Justice Roberts ruled that the EPA does not have the congressional authority to limit emissions at existing power plants through its new rules, but that it could still regulate emissions at power plants implementing emissions that the agency decided were outdated. In common Supreme Court fashion, however, Justice Roberts kicked the question of broader authority to Congress, saying that if Congress won't expand the power of the Environmental Protection Agency, it was surely invited to do so through new legislation. Classic SCOTUS. So classic. Typical. On the other hand, Justice Kagan wrote in dissent that, The subject matter of the regulation here makes the court's intervention all the more troubling. Whatever else this court may know about, it does not have a clue about how to address climate change. And let's say the obvious, the stakes here are high. Yet the court today prevents congressionally authorized agency action to curb power plants' carbon dioxide emissions. The court appoints itself, instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. Respectfully, I dissent. In other words, Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer argue that the court overstepped its authority, whereas the majority argued that it was the Environmental Protection Agency doing the overstepping. I do like how Kagan says, whatever else this court may know about. (laughs) (laughs) These justices, my peers are very smart, but they have no experience in climatology. With this very thorough background, we decided to do a deep dive into the power of cities and how they can help combat climate change. And we're going to kick that deep dive off with our friend, Adam. Hey, Adam. Hey, guys. Let's jump in with my interview with my good friend, Tyler Zorn. I, you know, uh, originally from New Hampshire, I went to high school up there. Um, and obviously, like you mentioned, went to, to college with you uh, at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, where I received uh, my undergraduate degree in geology. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned, first uh, semester at Columbia University's uh, School of Professional Studies, working towards a master's um, degree in, in a master's of science degree in sustainability science. Uh, the program is generally just geared towards having students study the scientific aspects of sustainability to help organizations uh, sort of control pollution and conserve natural resources. So it's designed to you know, it's designed for those who wish to pursue a career in technical uh, aspects of sustainability, helping organizations sort of better understand, predict, um, and address environmental impacts. Um, before you know, I started uh, this semester at Columbia. Um, Again, like you mentioned, you know, um, I was at a, uh, you know, working for the past four years, um, a little bit more than four. So uh, after undergrad, I worked at a small firm, um, uh, engineering firm in New Jersey doing, uh, you know, soil and groundwater contamination mapping through this software called GIS or uh, Geographical Information Systems. Um, And, you know, worked there for a year. um, But after that, I've been at another firm uh, that was based in Midtown Manhattan for the past three years, sort of coordinating, facilitating remedial um, activities across the greater New York City area. Um, So the New York City office itself 
at that firm housed several different disciplines, including environmental, which I was a part of, uh, geotechnical was geotechnical, excuse me, which is a little bit more engineering, um, site civil, again, more engineering and then survey, which I'm sure you've seen, you know, those tripods doing survey for, you know, ground, you know, um, sea level and, uh, you know, bedrock and different types of, um, you know, small scale, uh, obviously centimeters, you know, millimeters per year, uh, but those, that type of serving among other disciplines. So, um, for time's sake, obviously we won't go into those disciplines, but I was involved in, in environmental. The hosts on this podcast are law students. Um, so we sort of avoided numbers and uh, avoided the hard sciences. Right. Uh, so we're stoked uh, to have you here, man. Um, okay. It. So thank you for providing that. And yep. Tyler, as you know, uh, this whole episode is sort of geared towards cities and local governments and how they're responding to climate change. A um, little bit of context, uh, there was a recent Supreme Court decision that sort of stripped uh, some of the federal powers away from the EPA uh, in responding to climate change. And so what we're trying to examine is sort of in that vacuum, what are the solutions? Let's focus on the problems and the appropriate answers to those problems. And we do see that cities can play a massive role in this space. Um, something that is sort of though under, I guess, uh, spoken about in the world of climate change is sort of reactive solutions to climate change. And this is sort of like really where you come in. Um, so I think like a really great place to just start is as an engineer, uh, whether you were at like Lagan Engineering or even at TRC as a geologist, uh, what was your experience interacting with local governments, especially as a private entity? Yeah, sure. So while working at uh, specifically Lagan and the uh, you know the firm in, in New York City here, um, we essentially acted as a liaison between uh, the property owners um, and the local government agencies responsible for environmental regulations. Um, so. A given property owner would hire us to investigate whether their property qualifies for cleanup programs or not. Uh, so these programs are generally overseen by um, two in particular here in, in New York City. It's the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation and the New York City um, Office of Environmental Remediation. Um, so, you know, Langan or, you know, um, the environmental engineering consultants and firms um, around the city are, are sort of hired to ensure that um, all redevelopment activities conducted um, from as early, obviously, as the breaking ground stage. So first time soil is disturbed by the, you know, you know, big excavators um, or drill rigs to, you know, for foundational purposes. Um, so that from the, that very beginning stage to um, essentially when foundation is poured um, and the superstructure of the building is being built, um, the firm is responsible for all the activities in between those two stages. Um, make sure that those activities are handled properly based on uh, agencies' uh, program guidelines. So, yep. okay, there, we have these risks. There's an agency that monitors these risks. You're, you came in sort of as the middleman between dealing with the property owner and yep. rep also, I don't want to say representing, but handling uh, the government agencies involved. Um, just like, you know, as a private like entity and like working in the private sector, what was it like to work with uh, state authorities? Did you find them helpful? I mean, it obviously sounds like you were able to improve these properties. Um, yeah, um, I mean, with any local and, you know, we didn't really deal with, I mean, New York State, um, you know, is a state level. We didn't really deal with the federal government um, much at all. But, you know, city and state uh, governments, um, you know, they're, they're very 
you know, strict um, in terms of the regulations. Like there's no, you know, kind of wiggling your way through it. They're obviously different, uh, a myriad of different ways you can remediate a site. Um, it's not just like, you know, it is their way in the hot, their way or the highway, but the property owner has a lot of leeway um, in terms of what highway they want to take, um, if that makes sense. Um, you know, it wasn't, um, it's difficult because, you know, the property owner um, wants, you know, the redevelopment site to be, you know, built as, you know, essentially as soon as possible. Um, and that, so we are hired by the property owners and help, you know, um, work with the government agency instead of the other way around. So it's not like us working with the government to help the property owners. It's kind of the other way around. It's like we're with the property owners and we help them navigate the government agency. And so, um, so we're kind of a third party consultant for the property owner and to deal, you know, with their tight schedule, you know, we need to do X, Y, and Z to meet our deadline because our investors, et cetera, are, you know, expecting this building to be up and operational and, and you know, you know, earning them money to, uh, you know, within two years or three years or whatever. But of course, you know, with any government agency, they're relatively un understaffed to a certain degree and have, you know, a lot of, a lot of projects on one given, you know, agent's plate. So, um, it's definitely difficult to manage expectations for the property owner um, because they're always in a rush. And, you know, on the flip side, the, the local and state government um, and how, you know, jammed they are, especially with these programs, you know, the BCP program, which we'll get into, uh, the Brownfield Cleanup Program. Um, I, I actually, uh, wait, to Tyler, if you don't mind, I mean, thank you for sharing sort of like the struggle with that. But I actually think this would be a great time to introduce the BC, uh, yeah. BCP program. Yeah, so... Um, kind of to backtrack um, to your point um, and kind of rehash, you know, uh, New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, who is responsible for the Brownfield Cleanup Project. Um, no matter what, like I said, material associated with a given redevelopment site, whether it's soil, groundwater, um, stuff like that, has to be uh, and must be handled and disposed of properly in the New York City area. So government agencies like the DEC and their regulatory programs incentivize this remediation by offering tax benefits uh, for how effectively the property owner decides to clean up the redevelopment site. So the DEC obviously has countless roles throughout the state of New York, um, but with regards to combating residual and historical contamination across the city, this is their main you know, objective. So the Brownfield cleanup program, so a Brownfield site is any previously developed land that is not currently in use. Um, so eligible brownfield sites are sites where a contaminant is present at levels exceeding the soil cleanup objectives or other health-based or environmental standards uh, criteria or guidance except are adopted by the DEC. So, um, you know, with that in mind, the, the BCP, the Brownfield Cleanup Program, is an incentive program for mediating the redevelopment site in order to receive tax benefits for doing so. But it sounds like in the world then of addressing climate change. There's proactive solutions such as limiting um, different molecules uh, from being exposed in the air. And then right. there's reactive solutions, which your sort of work falls under, where it sounds like right. there were all of these sort of very harmful um, products, all related to petroleum, that really, I mean, over time had terrible consequences for the resulting ground and soil. Um, and so I guess, as you guys work to sort of minimize the effects of these products, 
Is there any forethought in replacing these products? Obviously, the properties that will uh, be developed, they're going to still need heaters. Um, I don't know. Is there any way that you might be able to comment or is that a totally different? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, during redevelopment, when, you know, they if if and when they get into the, the brownfield cleanup program and they're, you know, have excavators on site and they, you know, we know oh, there might be a, a underground storage tank here and, you know, it is discovered or more often than not, these, these properties also have just historical, you know, underground storage tanks that we didn't even know about. And they'll, all, all of a sudden, excavator will, you know, puncture it and fluid will go everywhere and it's just a mess. But, you know, a lot of it is removing it. Um, so, you know, that's obviously huge. We, we remove all of the uh, unnecessary fueling, you know, um, c- components to the to the previously existing building. But then, you know, a lot of the the new buildings are, are either natural gas or electric. So, you know, there's no more. Um, actually, you know, if you walk the streets of New York and you see this, it's called a fill port and a, an event pipe. So um, that's a telltale sign if you're on a, a site walk for a phase one and you see before even entering the building, this like cylindrical metal pipe with like a little like cap on it um, right up against the building. That's a vent pipe. Um, and then there's going to be a circular little um, port um, further um, towards the towards the street that, um, you know, trucks, you know, back in the day would come and hook up to that fill port, um, you know, inject whatever, you know, um, fuel source um, into that um, underground storage tank. And then the vent pipe would actually be for the volatile, you know, organic compounds to, you know, if they're, you know, all of a sudden, you know, if, if the tank fills up with too much um, um, vapors, um, it could obviously be, could, could explode potentially, but that, that vent pipe, um, was there to, to release those slowly out of the, out of the tank so that, um, it didn't become a hazard. Obviously you're releasing into the atmosphere. So, but they didn't care about that. So, um, it, like I said, long story short, it's just like a random fun fact. If you're walking through New York, you'll be able to see those kind of historical and not, I mean, they still are in use some buildings, but a lot of them have been replaced with electrical or natural gas, um, heating systems. And then they're just like left there until, you know, they're not in use anymore. Somebody wants to redevelop it. They demo it, take it out. Cool. Um, okay. So, I mean, if, if I may, um, we're going to start wrapping this up and obviously sure. like, this is a bigger question. You don't have any experience. Buffalo wouldn't expect anything of it, but we are sort of seeing these like extreme weather events. Um, and with the polarization and sort of unfortunate disagreement about climate change, um, do you think that, Changes in climate will sort of serve as a catalyst in some form to making the soil and earth we live in like more hazardous. Um, have you been seeing that or is that just like a fear of mine? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a good thought and obviously important to, uh, to think about um, in terms, you know, like I said, this, these types of re- remediation projects and redevelopment sites across the city are, are pretty localized and, and that's why we never really dealt with the federal government we were dealing just with you know city and state you know local governments um but you know that's honestly why i'm going back to school and i'm you know trying to get my master's in sustainability science uh, you know i'm not really sure what the solution is but i know you know to your point we need to be proactive about it as opposed to reactive um it's definitely good to have reactive solutions um and you know sort of clean up and right the wrongs that you know we didn't have regulations for back in the day but um you know the remediation sector is a very reactive sector and it's necessary for reducing those you know human health risks um but it's it deals with environmental hazards from the past so 
um, you know, morally, I don't know where the responsibility lies um, in terms of, you know, companies versus individual versus government. But, um, you know, and obviously there are, there is legislation constantly being drafted for, um, you know, to, to solve, to, you know, to try and find solutions um, for these climate change issues. But um, obviously it's relatively slow paced. So, um, you know, the, you know, you, you see startups, you know, you see individuals kind of taking the responsibility on in their own hands, especially, you know, through startups, you know, there's startups about, you know, you name it, obviously you, you're, you're, you're uh, familiar, but, you know, creating alternatives for fossil fuels through like biomass and algae research, or there's like really cool ones, like, you know, um, re-engineering cornstarch or other like natural resources or items as like styrofoam alternatives for like, pa- you know, cardboard packaging or, uh, using seaweed as alternatives for plastic packaging. So, you know, there's, there's all these different incentives and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, disheartening when, you know, government and, you know, big business try and put it on the individual, but then, you know, say they're trying to solve it, um, and are, you know, slow slash, you know, put it back on the individual, but there's this obviously big boom of, of startups um that you know individuals are kind of taking to their own hands so um again i don't i don't know the real answer obviously again that's why i'm kind of going back to school i'm super excited to be back at school and taking these cool cool classes and um but it's yeah it's it's a definitely a complex issue that people um you know for certain need to be talking about and doing podcasts about First of all, Adam, that was an incredible interview. You did a great job. Uh, you guys are uh, too kind. Thank you. And I think we'll have the full thing on our YouTube page because we kind of chopped and screwed it. So if you're interested in hearing the full interview, check out our YouTube page. But yeah, Adam, that was great. Yeah, we're trying to make our episodes shorter now because apparently like ideal time frame for podcasts is what, 30 minutes? <laughs> People don't have good attention span, I guess. Lower and lower. People's attention spans are shrinking fast. It's the TikTok, TikTok generation. Um, but there is an elephant in the room. Um, obviously, we did not talk to a city council member. But as Jess said in the intro, we do have episodes with city council members or people who've worked with cities. But I thought Tyler was still just, and as we all did, Tyler was still a great resource as someone who's in, interacting and engaged with cities. Um, and... Part of what I loved about working in San Diego all those years ago, which is really not that long ago, was that they often outsourced everything, you know, tax incentives, push people to behave a certain way, uh, just providing the procurement process of, here, here's some government money, someone resolved this problem. And I thought that was like awesome. And then you start talking about the startup culture, but that startup culture is largely enabled by government initiatives. Yeah, I mean, that was actually... I found that to be one of the more surprising takeaways of the conversation. Uh, the context of all of this is obviously like a limited federal role. And then Tyler's experience in this is because even within the private sector, he sort of, I mean, as he mentioned, like plays the middle ground between the state and the state's objectives because the state itself can't sort of be the ones on the ground uh, looking out and helping these companies throughout these hazardous changes. And it does show you that states are not only, I guess, adaptable through these uh, different tax incentives and working within the private sector, but that certainly government is, dare I say, handicapped and relies on the private sector to do all of this. And that makes me wonder about 
who uh, Tyler felt like he was truly representing. Because he, he pointed out that his consulting firm, they work for and are hired by the landowners. But uh, at the same time, their whole job, and they, the only way they do it well, is by really knowing what the local and state regulations are and about catching them ahead of time. And about, like he said, being there at every stage of a re redeveloping a plot of land from as soon as the soil is disturbed uh, until the foundation is laid. And so that sounds like a regulatory role. And yet, of course, this is a private firm trying to make money. And, uh, and so all, all of that kind of just, I think that it just underlies the fact that there are just so many actors at every uh, single level, but especially at the local level, and that the divide between maybe polluters and regulators uh, is, is just overly simplistic. And so when it comes to incentives, I mean, how, do we, how would a regulator begin to want to change the incentives of a consulting firm, an environmental consulting firm? Do they want to? How, did, how would they do that? What, what consequences would come? I think, you know, it's, it's a great point. I think the tax incentives for property owners, they sort of speak for themselves that while the state has these environmental regulations to implement them, let's call a spade a spade. Property developers have to be interested in generating a profit. And I think right. that's a really important takeaway here where for the ground to actually change, you need the private side to first have a profit motive. And candidly, I don't think that should be the way things are. And uh, I don't really have a solution to it, but I think especially in the hindsight of um, West Virginia for CPA, with limited government roles, should we want private sector sort of driving? I disagree, Adam. So, well, I just want to push back. Do I don't think the government's role here is at all limited. I think it's a facilitator. It is not limited at all. Like the government has such a role in setting the course of how we all interact. I mean, I remember August when I used to always talk about innovation and I don't want the government to hamper around innovation. I have the utmost faith in the creative minds of innovators to work around what our government that is democratically elected has said you can't do. Time and again, we are really good at that. And I just... I hesitate to say it's limited. That's all. No, no, no. Let me. I, that, that's, a, that's a good. That's a good point. Let me clarify. I think one of the things that I was so surprised about was with the limited role of the federal government. States do play such an uh, important role, and then city government, with its own regulations, plays an important role within that environment. And I think I was so surprised of the importance of localized regulation um, in sort of a broader theme of the federal government maybe not wanting to take more responsibility for these issues. I also think talking about like market interest and the desire to make a profit points to another important theme, which is like, I find a lot of these climate conversations sort of wanting of holistic solutions. Um, like even the discussion of like some bold statement about like a singular way forward. And I wonder, like, that's not to say that just about this interview, but I think that's just the state of affairs in like climate activism and climate conversations. And I think like, I wonder if that's driven by sort of a hesitancy to undercut like the spirit of climate activism. And that maybe the idea is that if we start like chastising one aspect of climate solutions, then it will just like, seep like so division within a group of already small people that are interested in making these changes but it's like it's like recycling like 
people get animated about recycling, but there are a lot of indications that the United States and other high waste countries do not have any functional recycling infrastructure. Like things don't actually get recycled. They're just sitting somewhere waiting to be recycled once we figure out how to recycle water bottles. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to point out that Adam, you, you discussed this with talking to, to Tyler, but this kind of divide between reactive and proactive responses to, to climate change. And I think reactive responses, especially when the regula regulations are in place, I mean, I feel like it's much more amenable for the market to do that. Taking on a proactive role enforced by private actors, I mean, where's the money there? Uh, it's hard to see how, I, I just feel like the incentive structure totally changes uh, when it comes to trying to incentivize private actors to be more proactive and for example, adopting natural gas or more, more efficient heating. Well, I think that's honestly kind of the perfect place to hand off on because, you know, the ultimate point here was to get all of you on the periphery to start thinking more about how cities can engage. And I think, I think we did it, guys. I don't know. Did we do it, folks? Have we done it? Have we done did it again? Have, have we kicked off season three sufficiently arguing for cities? <laughs> and civic engagement if you care about climate change i feel like starting at the city level is a much more like effective way to make a difference than like federal trying to get into the federal system yeah totally armchair armchair piece of advice <laughs> yeah you know yeah i love it you know i'm, I'm always going to be the, the biggest local as possible person ever uh as always thanks for joining us on the periphery you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but until next time. Talk to you next week. Peace.